powerful passage here. Uh, sometimes easy to be scanned over because it's at the end of 30 some other commands, but rich truths here at the end. So last Sunday we dove into verses 2 through 4 of Colossians 4, and you can turn there in your Bibles, paper ones or screen ones, um, and began to think about the section of evangelism here, and today we're just going to expand on those, adding verses 4 and 5 to the mix. What we see here is Paul shifting from pray for me and my gospel sharing to commands, final commands to this body of believers in Colossae, but to you and me as well today, for the churches and the other believers sharing. We know in some way that Paul has a sense that his days of preaching are numbered and limited, and so there is a sense here where he is passing the baton, charging the other believers that he is handing this responsibility to them, that it now rests on their shoulders, and that they are the next generation to carry on. And now, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of generations later, this charge comes to First Street Bible Church even this morning and to each of us here. Again, Paul is simply uttering out of what Jesus himself prayed as he went to the cross in John 17, 18. As you, speaking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, my followers, disciples, into the world. Among the many identities and purposes that God gives those he saves, including things such as being made his disciples, his children, adopted and born into his family, saints, priests, servants. Among all of those, one of the especially important identities and purposes is to be his messengers, to be the ones who deliver his news. In a way, we could say his reporters, his announcers, his ones who are sent by him with a particular mission to deliver news to everyone they possibly can. Some of the last words of Jesus as he ascended back to heaven was part of this charge. You will be my witnesses. But some really graphic language is in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 18 to 20, where God makes us ambassadors for Christ and gives us both the message of reconciliation, that's the gospel, and the ministry of reconciliation. That's the proclaiming of that gospel. And he goes on to say toward the end of that, God makes his appeal through us, through the messengers, through the witnesses, through the ambassadors. And so he finishes with, we implore you, which is a strong word for begging you urgently on behalf of Christ. And here's the message in the ministry of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Peter, in his writing of his first letter, has a rich verse in chapter 2, which really gives us four identities. He says, of the church, of the believers that are scattered all over, you're a chosen race by God, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people of God's own possession, and here's why. 
Not so you'll just sit around and wait for the second coming and bask in the glories that are coming in heaven. But that you will go out and actively proclaim. That's the same word as the Great Commission at the end of Mark. Go unto all the world and proclaim, declare, announce, report, tell, say, speak of. Declare as we see in verse 3 of Colossians 4. The gospel, the good news. In other words, God is giving us this whole sense of here's glorious identities. Now in those identities, go proclaim, and I love the wording, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which should ring a bell from Colossians 1, uh, 12 and 13, where Paul gives some of that, uses some of that same language uh, to speak of it. And then, familiar to us also, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus portrays the calling of every follower of his as salt and as light. And in both of those word pictures, he warns, saltless salt, salt that's lost its favor, flavor, and lightless light, light that isn't shining, being hidden, is essentially what? Worthless. That's pretty striking. It's only fit to be tossed out. So, when we lose our primary purpose of being salt and light, of being messengers, ambassadors, witnesses, we lose some of our primary function and purpose for God remaining us here on earth and saving us when he has. One other introductory thing to note uh, about this section, Paul uses a term for non-Christians here that's kind of unique it's, it's only used seven times, three times in 1 Corinthians 14 in one chapter, and then a handful of other times. But I think it's a pretty apt word picture to describe. Now, other places, Scripture speaks of unbelievers, those who don't believe in Christ, haven't repented of their sins and followed him, as the lost, the wicked, the evil, enemies of God, even stark language in 1 John of being children of the devil. But here, he speaks of the lost, the, those who don't know the gospel or believe the gospel as outsiders, portraying not just that they're not a part of the church, because there's outsiders sitting in here today, but outside of the kingdom of God, those who have not walked through the narrow gate by faith and repentance, those who are not on the narrow path, those who are not in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that Jesus announced he was coming to bring. So all this to say, God's final commands in Colossians do not press us to withdraw and be isolated from an evil world. He actually charges us to go in among the evil in the world not be conformed to their pattern of living, but in the midst of that, to invite people to announce the good news of Christ and to invite outsiders to enter into the kingdom of heaven by, as Jesus told Nicodemus, being born again. So to give a little bit of formation to thought here, here's my four outlines for these four verses. Just... Tweaking words as only an English teacher would love to do. If you love simplicity, pray, declare, walk, speak. If 
you like adverbs, pray steadfastly, declare clearly, walk wisely, speak graciously. If you like tying it all together to the gospel, then gospel-focused prayer, gospel-pure declaration, gospel-driven living, and gospel-seasoned speaking. And then to put all of that together, my most elaborate outline, verses 2 and 3 are about praying for gospel advancement. Because if God doesn't do the work, it doesn't matter what we try on our own effort for salvation. Verses 3 and 4 declare with gospel clarity because the stakes are too high to be careless in how we word the gospel. Verse 5, to live with gospel wisdom because time is short, our lives are short, and we must never by our living discredit the gospel. And finally, verse 6, where we'll spend actually the most time, answer each person with gospel-seasoned grace. Because news of grace should be delivered with grace. So a huge passage here for us to challenge us, but also encourage and stir and stimulate us to express these things for the Lord's glory. Would you join me in asking God to work? Today, Lord, again, we pray what we often do. Please show us Christ. Please show us more of him, the treasures of your grace. Help us behold, and by that beholding, be transformed from one degree of glory when we walked into this sanctuary to another deeper degree of glory as we walk out. Consume us with Christ. And help us to see, to feel, to desire these things that are the very heart of you. We ask in your name and for your glory's sake through First Street Bible Church. Amen. So number one, back to verse two, which we talked about last week, so we won't camp here long. But just to come back to give the context, because all of this is started by praying and praying particularly for Doors for the gospel. So the idea is that we should so burn with the zeal of our identity and purpose as messengers, ambassadors, that we pray and pray and pray about it. And MacArthur here reminds us that true prayer often involves struggling and grappling with God. Hence the stay continues steadfast in verse 2. Proving to him the deepest concerns of one heart, one's heart. Prayer is to be a persistent, courageous struggle from which the believer may come away limping. So before we proclaim, we must pray. While we proclaim, we must pray and we must have others praying. And after we proclaim, we must pray. Before we talk to men about God, we must talk to God about men. So, praying for evangelism opportunities, not just for ourselves, though certainly I hope all of us have a list of those people that we're particularly burdened for, but also for everybody else in our body, all other believers as well. And part of this is probably hinged on the fact that some of the most intense spiritual warfare that we face in all of the Christian life comes when we seek to share. 
the glorious light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this world because of sin. The way that it's portrayed in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 is so vivid and powerful. Paul says here, if our gospel is veiled, and he's talking about preaching it clearly. So if it's veiled, it's veiled because what he describes, he calls Satan the God of this world. And really all gods of this world are blinding the minds. What a graphic picture. So evangelism is really going after these blinders, identifying and addressing these blind, blinding things with truth and seeking by God's work to remove blinder after blinder after blinder after blinder. Often why it takes so many sharings of the gospel for people to believe. There's so much blindness. The blinders are so thick in their layers. So evangelism here calls for a recognition of this a need for prayer, and a need not just, I'm going to go witness and I need prayer, but I need everybody praying as I seek to share the gospel. Um, that's why I think even particularly like today is praying for this Israel team, because their boots on the ground right there in the midst of that warfare, experiencing it, and we need to pray for God's work. But notice, even Paul, experienced as he is, doesn't turn to his skill, doesn't turn to his knowledge of the, script, of the scriptures and of the gospel, doesn't turn to his eloquence. In fact, he speaks often of not coming with trying to impress you by how I word everything. And he doesn't count on his past successes, nor is he turned away by his past failures in evangelism. Regardless of all those things, he comes to this body of believers as he writes them, and he does the same thing in uh, to the Ephesian church in Ephesians, seeking divine help through the prayers of many for God to work. Sharing the gospel should be done in community. All of us aware of the mission all of us have been given and each of us endeavoring to hold each other up as we go. So question number one from verses two and the beginning of three is, how much are you praying for gospel advancement? How often? How much is it on your mind and on your heart? Is our burning there for the lost? For your own life as you seek to evangelize, but how much for other believers as well? Very, very convicting for me in this. Let's strive more for Street Bible to, to pray daily, often, always that God would hear and know that we are burdened for those who are outside of the kingdom of the beloved Son. Good word from Jeff Chang. It's actually, he was writing an article about Spurgeon's church and their praying, but here's some of what he draws. Prayer and evangelism go hand in hand. You say you believe that salvation belongs to the Lord, but if you don't pray alongside of all your evangelistic efforts, it suggests you really believe salvation belongs to you. Gather people to pray for the lost around you, for the lost loved ones, for neighbors, for co-workers, for the nations. Pray that God would have mercy and would save. Pray that God would raise up workers for the field. You'll be amazed at how God answers those prayers. And I love this last line. 
Let evangelistic prayer become the culture of your church. And he, he then quotes a man by the name of A.T. Pearson, who pulpit filled for Spurgeon. Imagine that. Like, how do you feel when you go in? Like, Spurgeon's not here. Here's me. But this is, this is how the beauty of God at work. But here's what he noted. This metropolitan tabernacle is a house of prayer, most emphatically. Prayer is almost ceaselessly going on. When one prayer meeting is not in progress, another one is. There are prayer meetings before preaching and others after preaching. It's no marvel that Spurgeon's preaching has been so blessed. He himself tributes it primarily to the prevailing prayers of his people. By the way, side benefit, pray more for gospel proclamation by your preacher and you'll get better preaching. Verses 3 and 4, secondly, declare with gospel clarity. Again, we noted this last week, just good to come back and think again about the importance of the accuracy of presenting the mysteries of Christ and to declare them in ways that are clear to people who have very misconstrued, very misunderstood, very corrupted, very distorted confusion and error about all kinds of truths about the gospel. And if you just think about uh, God, man, Christ response, a, a way we often think of gospel truths, just walk through those. Lots of people misconstrue God, the Father, and all kinds of things are distorted out of that because God is the foundation of the gospel and God is the end of the gospel. Almost everybody misunderstands sin and how truly evil it is and how truly evil their own sin is. And they misunderstand the wrath and anger and justice of God and hell. And often in this area, it's like we're speaking a foreign language to them. People find Christ uncompelling because they don't see their own sin as evil against God or deserving of an eternal consequence and punishment. But this is where so many people are. So we need clarity about sin. Third, I would say everyone, including you and me, fails to rightly understand Christ on some level but some in serious deficiencies that keep them from truly believing in him, particularly when he's syncretized with other false beliefs and unbiblical truths. And finally, people misunderstand or fail to understand faith and repentance, the two-sided response that God says sinners must have to Christ and the gospel. Similarly, if you flip that around, there are lots of ways that we can talk of God and present truths about him. We always need wisdom in every conversation to discern what should be said, what doesn't need to be said at this point, perhaps later. And we can think about that with sin as well. How long, how clear, how much do I define it? Which scriptures should I use? Do I illustrate it? How do I illustrate it? So many truths about Christ, so many to unpack before people. They don't have to have all of them, but they need to have the critical, core, central ones to understand which, which things about Christ do I need to bring to the forefront? Which things are they misunderstanding? Which errors to correct? Which can come with time? Which are essential for them if they were to die tonight? And lots of ways that we can explain faith and repentance. All of this to say, to be clear, 
to be articulate, we need wisdom from God. Now, I want to add to the emphasis of clarity here in Colossians, the emphasis of boldness in Ephesians 6. So we noted this last week that Paul has an almost identical prayer of asking the Ephesian church to pray him. The slight nuance is boldness instead of clarity. So let's add that to this mix in Colossians as well. So all this to say, I think, the emphasis on we must present an accurate gospel. We must present it clearly to the individual. In other words, we can have an accurate gospel that isn't clear to the individual. And we need to declare it often with a boldness, perhaps the greatest courage that we exhibit in any aspect of our lives or in anything else that we're facing. All at the same time, making sure that we are not thinking that how we do things will determine whether God will save that individual or not. Let's not put too much on us and think that it rests primarily on ours. So, tender balance in there. So secondly, how much are you declaring the gospel to outsiders? And how much are you praying for clarity? And if we add Ephesians, boldness in there. Kevin DeYoung here on this thought, in closing, this thought. Unless we spend time with Jesus, we will not speak of him clearly. We will not speak of him loudly. We will not let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. We will not have the truth abiding in us and exploding out of us. And then he gives three illustrations. The more time you spend immersed in sports, the more time you spend immersed in politics, the more time you spend immersed in whatever your hobby or whatever your interest, the more clearly you speak on that issue. You get bolder about those things. You see more. You understand more. So you speak more. That's good. But what about your courage with the gospel? What about your clarity with the things that matter most? You will not be bold to speak of Jesus unless you spend much time with Jesus. Courage, and I would say clarity, and conviction come out of communion. Third, and now moving to new material, verse 5, living the gospel with wisdom, gospel wisdom, because our lives must never discredit the message that we're proclaiming. So walk is the command, very similar to just live. It's a common metaphor of Scripture, of how we flesh out our faith, how we put into practice the things that we believe, how our beliefs drive our behavior. So we're called throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, to walk in Christ, to walk by faith, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in love, to walk in truth, to walk in the light, to walk properly before outsiders. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4. Or earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. In other words, not just inside the church family, but outside of the church family, the way you live should commend the gospel as much as the words you say. Beg reminds us. Actions matter. Behavior matters. How we conduct ourselves around outsiders matters. It communicates something to each of them. How we live matters probably more than most of us realize. We're probably being watched more than most of us realize or want. 
before we commend Christ to people in words, often our lives have to commend Christ or our message is weakened. Here's one example, and it's trying to witness to somebody who holds to a prosperity gospel. But just to illustrate how living is so important. Uh, this is Alan Duty. Live a generous life that shows our greatest joy is found in God, not in material blessings God gives us. And all of us would say, yes, amen. But if we're arguing convincingly against the prosperity gospel from Scripture, but then live to acquire and hoard money and possessions, we undo with our lives everything we may have accomplished with our lips. David Garland. People listen to our message sometimes more with their eyes than with their ears. Isn't that good? Making a good impression is not everything, but it's not unimportant. The purpose of acting wisely is not simply to win the good opinion of outsiders. Too often that's our motive. But to help win them to God. The gospel message must always be fleshed out by the way believers live. The silent force of righteous living can speak loudly. Hence Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.12, just after proclaim the excellencies of him, keep your work. So you see Peter and Paul are both balancing that. Words and actions. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or among outsiders honorable so that when they speak against you, as many people will speak against Christians, when they do make those accusations, perhaps slander you, criticize you, over time, your, your honorable conduct may help them see your good deeds and, by God's grace, glorify him on the day of visitation. Each of our interactions with each non-believer or outsider layers an impression on them about God if they know that we're Christians or when they find out that we're Christians. Small or big, right or wrong, good or bad, it forms an impression. And that perception affects whether they listen or how well they listen or won't listen to what we have to say. And I would just add here, in our country, in our culture, in our setting, because so many people have such negative views of Christ followers. Whether they're accurate or not, we have a huge mountain to overcome by living honorably ourselves so that if they slander Christianity, it's not something that can be said of us that's true, even when we may be standing against their sin. Still unpacking first part of verse 5. Walk in wisdom. So just a reminder here, but I think this is the emphasis of everything that's left, is wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Wisdom is, according to Piper, knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men, we'll see that scripture in a little while, without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment. I think that's really good. Having a feel for the moment from God, seeing things the way God is seeing them, and having an eye for what people need and want. Sorry, trying to save you some time. 
Thank you. We never want foolish living on our part to deter in any way from the glory of the gospel that we are speaking. And now, even more specifically in verse 5, making the best use of the time. So the term here is the idea of redeeming, some translations say. Buying up, carpe diem, seizing the day, the moment, the hour, the opportunity. Recognizing our identity, our purpose, and living and spending our time, our days of our lives in light of that. Recognizing that every day matters. Every day is a gift from God. Every day belongs to Him. Every day is to be used for His glory. Same idea as Psalm 90 prays from Moses. Teach us to number our days. To have this sense of the clock is ticking down. I'm running out of time. Help us to number our days and the days of the lost when they can repent and believe. That we may get what what numbering our days does is impress on us a greater wisdom. So God's call is not to squander the time here on earth. To learn to see what he values, what he wants us doing. The mission he has put each of us on in unique circumstances. And then investing ourselves in that. He doesn't want us always saying, someday I'm going to talk to so-and-so about the gospel. Once again, parallels in Ephesians. So let's look at Ephesians 5, just because I think it's helpful to see the different ways Paul words them in these two letters and the similar ways. So here's what he says in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk. There's that same walk, live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Same thought. Making the best use of the time. Almost the exact same wording. Because the days are evil. Then he reiterates in Ephesians that he doesn't do in Colossians. Therefore, do not be foolish. Do not be stupid. Do not be caught up in things that distract from making the best use of your time that God has given you. Understand that the Lord has a will for how you are to live. And seek to understand that will. And then he adds that familiar line, and it's just simply one way that he could have worded this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. His emphasis, his point there is, it's stupid for Christ followers to squander opportunities for Christ because they become so intoxicated by something in this world. Wine is one of a million intoxications we can have that they will never ultimately do under King Jesus and his kingdom. Followers of Christ must see the world's godless activities not as something cool to be imitated, but as something tragically sad to be avoided. And instead, fill your life with the Spirit, with the things of God, back to Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Seeking the things of him. All of this brings us to Jesus' words in John 9, 4. Where he said, as he was in the middle of ministry, we, so we to the disciples, we to his followers, must work the works of him who sent me. And then he gives this word picture. While it is day. Night is coming, and then he defines what night is, when no one can work. 
when there can be no more harvesting of lost souls, when there can be no more saved. Paul unpacks it in Romans 13 this way. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us. The completion of God's plan for salvation for this world is nearer to us than when we first believed. So the clock has ticked down already. The night is far gone. Now a little different use of it. The day is at hand. Right now we're in the day. So let us cast off the works of darkness that keep us from doing the work and put on the armor of light. Don't walk and walk properly in the daytime, not in all these sinful ways the way the world does. And put on the Lord Jesus and stop making provision for your flesh. All of that to express making the best use of time. So, how are you walking through this world, the days that God has given you? Wisdom. Any ways in which you're squandering, foolishly wasting, sidetracked, distracted, caught up in the things that perishing people are doing rather than things that rescuing people are to be doing. But people will not know the gospel simply by us walking wisely and making the best use of time if we don't open our mouths and speak it. Nice lives do not save. They may impress people. They may soften them to be open to the gospel. But we must use words. We must open our mouths. And I want to say here, in this day and age, where this is such an active way many of us talk, communicate, to think in terms also of that speaking, writing, typing, whatever you want to say there, and how absolutely essential words are. So the closing thought, verse 6, is, first of all, answer each person with gospel seasoned grace. First of all, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, I think this is a commending of all speech, so your speech doesn't have any qualifying words on it. So again, Ephesians 4.29 has a pretty parallel thought. Let no corrupting talk or words, another translation, not a single unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that's what is good for building people up, what fits the occasion. And now notice the grace emphasis, that it may give grace to those who hear the way that you are talking. But I also think, given the context, particularly of verse 3, that this is a command particularly for evangelism. Let me unpack that thought a little bit. There's a lot of harsh gospel. Now that's an oxymoron. There's a lot of harsh gospel proclamation. People who just use fear and condemnation as a weapon they swing. Are there threats in gospel truths and in the ultimate gospel message? Absolutely. But they don't need to be the thing we lead with or swing with. Others call outsiders to just moral reform, kind of a Christless Christianity. Others assert pressure. Others emotional manipulation. There's lots of ways that the true message can be presented in a way that can be harmful or wounding. So God emphasizes graciousness. As we said earlier, news of his grace should be delivered in the spirit of his grace. Jesus, our example, Luke tells us in Luke 4.22, that all spoke well of him 
and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Grace won so many people to him. They saw it, they felt it, they heard it, and it spoke deeply. Sam Storms, what matters is not simply the content we speak, the manner or spirit in which we speak of Christ to others. We are to be both pointed and pleasant in our witness. But perhaps even we can hone in on while we're actually getting gospel speaking opportunities that a believer's speech should set that ground as a purifying influence. Rescuing conversation from the filth, or I would just say the folly, that so often engulfs it. Seeking that in each of our replies, all the ways that we're interacting and talking with non-believers, that there's a grace element that is salting and flavoring all of that. Proverbs chapter 25 gives three different illustrations of how important the words are. A word fitly, spoken at just the right time, with just the right tone, with just the right amount, dealing with just the most important things, is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Or like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And there is reproving that comes in the gospel message when it confronts sin. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes souls. Some people who claim to be Christians shock me with their language. Not necessarily all of it. But you know, it only just takes one or two words that set somebody back for us to lose opportunities, perhaps, for gospel impact. I'll use a very simple one, and it may not resonate with you at all. But from 25 years of teaching high school and being around high schoolers, one of the things I noted was they often tried to talk as close to the world like the world as they could without actually using the world's world. So instead of the F-bomb, they would use some F-euphemism. Close, so everybody could know they were walking right on the balance. Or if they were gutsy, they'd go ahead and use that F-word. But another one is, constantly I heard, holy blank. Holy C-R-A-P, I can't even say it. So then when you want to talk to somebody about how holy God is, what have you taught them about holy? Words matter. Every word in some sense matters. And so be prepared to answer, to interact, to speak with, and speak in ways with non-believers and outsiders where your word choice is clearly different, where your subject matter is different, where the depth and importance of things that you talk about is definitely different. And then the last thought, so that you may know how to answer each person, whether that's in your verbal response or sometimes by your nonverbal, that you don't give them any additional grounds to reject or dismiss the truth of Christ. I think this is getting a little bit at... Talk about spiritual things in ways that are stimulating to people, not in shallow, blah, perhaps predictable 
and there's a balance here because sometimes people know the gospel. It's predictable what you're going to say, but they haven't really unpacked it in understanding. But it's the idea of engaging people in ways that are stimulating, challenging them, getting them thinking. Now, it's possible, I don't want to go too far with this, but that verse 4, how it ends, and verse 6, how it ends, are talking about two different kinds of evangelism opportunities. Perhaps verse 4 is when we just get to declare the gospel straight out to somebody. And verse 6 is when they have pushback and there's lots of back and forth discussion. Maybe verses 3 and 4 are talking about when we get to proactively declare Christ. And verse 6 is talking about when we reactively respond to questions or objections about Christ. Again, I don't want to put too much into that. But it's intriguing that each of those verses ends with that same idea of how we ought to speak. Um, Peter, perhaps some of you thought of this immediately, has such a similar way he puts it in his letter. He front loads it with walk through your lives, your daily life, honoring Christ the Lord as holy. If you have that reverent fear of the Lord, that way of thinking about him and your identity and your purpose, then walk through honoring him, prepared, wanting to honor him, to make a defense, to give an explanation, or the word in Colossians 4 is to answer Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, which might come out of the way that you live or the way that you've talked to them in the past, yet do it, and here's the grace part, with gentleness and respect of them, keeping in all of this a good conscience that you are not in any way pushing them away from Christ and the truth and the gospel. So just the reminder here that we ought to be ready and not let fear, fear of their objections, fear of their questions, fear of their attacks, to silence us, but to be ready to speak and to answer in ways with grace that commend the gospel. A couple closing thoughts in this uh, verse, and then we'll tie together all of it. As we said last week, each person uniquely needs the gospel explained that's clear to them and each person is unique in the way they'll understand it and receive it. Every spiritual conversation is unique from the intellectual to the naive, the hater to the hurting, the hard-hearted to the searching, those who love their sin to those who are being destroyed by it, those who know some gospel and those who have never heard it before those entrapped in false gospels or false truths, false narratives, to those who have heard the true gospel hundreds of times and never, ever truly embraced it in faith. Sam Storms, not everyone hears the gospel the same way. It's the same gospel, but so rich in the ways that you, can, you and I can bring it. So I think that's part of what's behind Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 9 where he gives four illustrations of how he evangelized. When I'm with Jews, I become as a Jew. I try to think like them. I try to put myself in their understanding of things so that I can win them to Jesus. To those who are under the law, same thing. To those outside of the law, same thing. To the weak, and, and he could have gone on. He could have given dozens more of illustrations of the kinds of people and how he adapted 
his approach himself in order to be all things, whatever is needed to each and every person so that by some means that God might use, I might save some. Again, we're not going to say that Paul's saving, but that God would use him, that I might have opportunity to be a part of some salvation. The scripture doesn't give us a single, singular, one-way method or presentation that we're supposed to memorize, but gives us a whole plethora and range, dozens and dozens of verses and truths. It's intriguing even as we watch Jesus through the Gospels respond to individuals so uniquely, so sensitively, sometimes confrontationally, sometimes so graciously and gently, but it's so varied. All of this requires us to listen well, to ask good questions, and remember that questions work two ways. They help us clarify somebody's belief, but they sometimes also plant seeds of doubt about their beliefs, as Jesus so often used hundreds and hundreds of questions with people. So asking good questions, trying to diagnose and discern the cause of their unbelief. This might be a little graphic for you, but consider that when you're in conversation with a non-believer, you're doing an autopsy. Not all dead people die the same way, but they're all dead. Figuring out what's the what's cause, what's the source, what's at the heart, what's the biggest obstacle here, and asking God to help you discern. And finally here, well, I think it's finally, just about finally, let's also note that even if we answer well, most people will reject it. Sometimes some will oppose us. And sometimes, to some degree, we may be persecuted. Sometimes from our own family. Some of you are facing that. Sometimes in our work world. Sometimes in our neighborhood. Sometimes in our reputation. And I want to remind you here of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. That those of us who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, which would include for sharing the gospel with people who then turn around and revile and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against us, that there is tremendous reward and blessing. So rejoice even in that. It's, it's, an, it's a paradoxical way of thinking about it. But to recognize that all of that is because you are being faithful to what God has called you to do and he will deal with the responses of everyone. But every once in a while, if we're steadfast in praying and sharing, we get that glorious reward of seeing salvation either happen right in front of our eyes or to see that we were part of a process that perhaps others, and I'm just thinking of parenting, sometimes you pour four million gospel presentations into your child and then they go to youth camp and, and God saves them there. And you're like, oh man! But just to be a part of the process, to, be, to have the privilege of being a part of that and remembering just being faithful, being faithful to share that. And, and these four words really stood out to me this week from 2 Corinthians. That we're doing all of this on behalf of Christ. Because we're still physically here and he's not. Very quickly, Sam Storms. This doesn't really fit here, but it's good thought. 
Do people see and sense the sweetness of the Savior when we speak of him? He is altogether lovely and should not be made known, should not be made known in an unloving or unappealing manner. Jesus tastes good. Don't spoil the flavor by sinful additives or sour dispositions. And then the way God words it through Paul in 2 Corinthians 2. That it's through us. There it is again, that same phrase. Through us, stunningly, incomprehensibly, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved, the insiders, and among those who are perishing, the outsiders. We might be a fragrance from death to death, but we hope and pray that we're a fragrance from life to life. And then that convicting thought, who is sufficient? Who is really able to be used that way by God? So how are you doing in answering each individual with gospel-seasoned grace? Do you feel inadequate, insufficient for such things? I do. But God's given us each other. And he's given us tremendous resources to equip us and to spur us on in that. So we want you to know that we stand ready to help. That one of the most delightful activities we could do with you is seek to grow in evangelism and in sharing the gospel. You have elders, you have deacons, you have Sunday school teachers, you have life group leaders, you have so many other solid families. And beautifully, we have multiple evangelists in this body. People who spend their days, whether it's paid or just they're retired and voluntarily out doing it, looking for people to share the gospel with actively who would love to take you with them. Sorry, evangelists, I just invited you into all of that, but I know you would love it. Or to just train you in it, to talk about how to seek wisdom and understanding, perhaps for unique ways in which they minister. Do you need a greater understanding of the gospel? Do you need a greater conviction to share? Do you need accountability? Do you need courage? Do you want clarity? Do you need prayer? Meet one-on-one with someone. Form a group to equip and, and ready, for evangeliz- ready each other for evangelism. Read books. Listen to podcasts. What resources God has given us to equip us and build us up in this so that we are fulfilling, as we reflect on this passage, our identity and our purpose as witnesses, messengers, ambassadors, proclaimers, salt, and light on behalf of our dear Savior who gave us life so that we would have a message to share so that people might be saved by it. In conclusion, let me encourage you in a few ways here, built around a Paul Washer quote. First of all, keep studying the gospel, especially the doctrine, the truths of Christ, more. Be like a parched runner who simply cannot get enough of him. Drink him in. In community, like this morning's, and life groups, and in all the other ways, and where you meet with believers, but also alone, on your own, with him. That gospel wallet, like keep thickening that, keep putting more of the gospel riches within that, which is actually your heart, 
So as you discover more of them and they become clear to you as God shows them and you grow in treasuring those truths, that you will believe them more deeply and profoundly, they will take over your life and absorb it. Here's how Paul Washer put it. If Christ and his gospel are preeminent, and here's where he starts, in our mind and heart, and preeminent, remember, is the word from Colossians 1.18, that the point of everything is that Christ is preeminent. So if it's preeminent in our personal mind and heart, then Christ will certainly be preeminent in our proclamation. And he'll be the preeminent standard to which we seek to be conformed. And he'll be the preeminent motivation of our life. So as we grow in that first thought, that first line, then we grow exponentially in the other ways. He and his glories will be more and more on our lips. We will be made more and more like him. And let me just interject here to take Colossians 4, 2 to 6 and think of it in Christ's life. We will pray more steadfastly, watchfully, and thankfully like Jesus for others. Like Jesus, we will more clearly declare his mystery to outsiders who are blind to his glory. Like Jesus, we will live more wisely and make better use of our time for his mission and his glory. And like Jesus, we will speak more graciously with salt and answer people more wisely. And finally, we will be more and more moved to live our lives wholly for him. Father, we again just thank you for these short but mighty thoughts in Colossians 4. We understand they are commands to us that we are to embrace understand the importance of, and seek by your Spirit's help to obey. So God, help us. Help us in praying, declaring, walking, and speaking to represent Christ, to speak on his behalf, and to do it in ways that you will work to draw many to a saving faith in you. God, please use this body and use each of us to draw many to see the glories of Christ, embrace him, and live their lives for him. For your glory's sake. Amen.